Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. We still have a few great guests sharing their stories in Season 2, but I've sort of spontaneously jumped in to talk about something that's been on my mind a lot these past few weeks. Maybe it's the earlier sunsets, or that we're coming up on the one-year mark of my move to Miami, or maybe it's just a reflective time of year, with the holidays approaching, that made me want to hop in solo like this. But I'm grateful for you, out there listening, and for a platform that allows for this kind of vulnerability week after week. As the title suggests, today I'm going to talk about my relationships with feeling lazy and feeling lonely over the past 10-ish years, I'd like to make it known in advance that this episode doesn't have any great revelation or solution at the end of it. I haven't come out on the other side with a tidy list of tips for anyone who may be feeling these things. I also don't want to seem to be giving advice because I know that all of the advice that has been offered to me over the past several years hasn't felt like the right fit or like there's something wrong with me because no one's advice seemed to quote-unquote work. But what's nice about creating this episode has been that each time I've procrastinated writing it or scrolled mindlessly through Instagram instead of editing it, I've been able to say, it's okay because inaction is the topic of this episode. I'm living the subject in real time. As we talked about last week in episode 2.5, the more we share about the messy things, the more we can relate to others and the more authentic our community feels. And in the spirit of community... I'd love to hear if any of you have experienced these things. Maybe the pandemic gave them a stronger presence in your life. Maybe you feel them seasonally or circumstantially. Or maybe these are experiences you haven't necessarily had, but considering them could give you a better understanding of the person sitting next to you at a cafe or passing you in the hallway of your apartment building or showing up on your Instagram feed. If you haven't already done so, you can show some love for Of Age by subscribing and downloading the episodes on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, joining the conversation on Instagram, and pledging a small amount on Patreon. And all of that information is also linked in the show notes. Thank you for your support. There are two huge bags filled with old or unwanted clothes sitting in the corner of my bedroom. They've been there for about two months now. There's a Goodwill donation trailer half a mile north of my apartment and another half a mile west. Each Friday afternoon, when I make my to-do list for the weekend, I write Goodwill at the top, and yet the bags remain. There are certain chores I love to do and certain errands I love to run, For example, those Goodwill bags are full because I absolutely love organizing. I find folding laundry therapeutic. I think grocery shopping is exciting and creative. But other chores seem daunting, or boring, or just not worth it. Not completing them feels like obvious examples of laziness. Not washing my bras frequently enough, definitely not flossing frequently enough. Letting those clothing donation bags collect dust in the corner instead of just taking the 10-minute walk to Goodwill. These are all tasks that are easy, that would take minimal time to achieve, and they still feel like a huge inconvenience. I spent a great deal of my 20s navigating the difference between laziness, depression, and lack of motivation. There was a collection of British millennial influencers that I used to follow during my early 20s, back when I lived in London. 
I was enrolled in a course there and working part-time as a nanny, but I otherwise had lots of free time. These influencers lived publicly charming and aesthetically pleasing lives. They had interesting things to say on skincare, on new books or recipes, on social engagements and general life happenings. I particularly enjoyed their routine videos, how they spent their mornings or how they unwound in the evenings. While I'm absolutely aware that nothing is quite as perfect as it seems, particularly on social media, I was always inspired by how fulfilled they seemed by their days. At some point or another, almost all of these YouTubers shared a video on their self-care routine, the things they would do to relax and pamper themselves. The videos would be soothing montages of candlelit baths and expensive face masks. We take on so much in this day and age, the voiceover would say, showing someone turning the page of a book whilst taking a sip of red wine or herbal tea. Sometimes it just gets to be too much. And it's true. Many of my peers do take on so much. I have known lawyers in big cities who kept pillows under their desks just so they could nap for 15 minutes, have six shots of espresso or some other energizing substance, and then keep right on working. I know teachers who offer their personal time even when the school day is over to coach a sport or chaperone a dance. And I think about what I used to do in college. Go to class, nanny three nights a week, volunteer downtown on the weekends, turn every assignment in on time, eat lunch and dinner with friends in the dining hall, go to football games. There was constant human interaction, and there was constant activity. And yet, I still had favorite binge-worthy TV shows. I still got eight hours of sleep. I still got to quietly refill my introverted cup when I needed to. But soon after graduation, the schedule quickly became less occupied. Friends moved to all different parts of the country. I had no extracurriculars. My plan of becoming a writer seemed much vaguer without the structure of professors telling me how many words were due and when. And the less I knew how to fill my time, the less I actually did. Influencers write these blog posts and post these videos giving advice on how to have a wellness day or a self-care night, about how it's important for our mental health to take a step back in a world where we tend to take on too much. But what about when the opposite problem is affecting our mental health? What if we don't take on anything at all? I would often think about those YouTubers and their self-care routines. Sure, I took a bubble bath, watched a movie, lit a candle, and drank wine on any given night. But I also didn't do anything else prior to that. I'd watch these bustling daily routines out and about in London, with full accessibility to those same cafes, museums, and workout classes, while I laid in bed watching TV episodes I had already seen. Did that make me lazy? Or was there something deeper at play? Several years later, I was in an even lower place. The deeper I got into my 20s, the more directionless I felt. I had quit my teaching job, partially because I was unhappy and mostly to write full-time, only I wasn't writing. My savings were dwindling, and I had sent hundreds of job applications out with no answer. I applied to dream jobs. I applied to jobs I was overqualified for. And I applied to jobs that I was perfect for. The jobs that perfectly aligned to my degrees, to my passions, to my experience. I've talked before on this podcast about how frustrated I get when I hear things like, don't stop even if you've applied to 100 jobs because you'll land the 101st. 
I don't think there's enough conversation about, or acknowledgement of, the people who do apply to 101, or the people who apply to 301, and don't land any of them. It's something I frequently talked about, and still do, with a friend of mine who's also a writer. We would send cover letters that we knew were strong, and highlight things on our resumes that we knew were intriguing, and even send follow-ups to people we knew would read. Nothing seemed to produce any results, and it made us both wonder what the point in even trying was. These conversations are how I introduced a new consideration into my brain's buzzing and ongoing debate between laziness and depression. It's how lack of motivation earned a seat at the table. Because the less feedback I heard from those job applications, the less motivated I was to fill out new ones. And I definitely didn't want to work on the personal essays that were my true passion. If people didn't even want to read my thoughts on safe topics like food or Philly tourism, I sure wasn't going to put anything actually vulnerable out there. I would read listicles on how to break out of a funk, articles on how to boost productivity, and books on good habit setting. None of it stuck. Off days turned into off weeks, and while I always made it out of my bed, I rarely made it off of my couch. I felt completely immobilized. My mom called me one day and gently suggested, Why don't you go take a ten-minute walk? Just ten minutes to get your body moving can make a huge difference in your day. But while this suggestion came from a loving place, it didn't help me at that point. I was so depressed. Depression for me was the knowledge that ten minutes outside would make a positive difference, but the total inability to convert that knowledge into action. I remember seeing a Nike ad around that time and feeling like the slogan, Just Do It, was a slap in the face. If just doing it was an option, wouldn't I just take it? Absorbing advice, particularly if it's unsolicited, can sometimes enhance feelings of inadequacy. For someone who is in a low place, a place where self-esteem is already in extremely short supply, advice can be received as, I don't think you've tried hard enough, so try this. So, I started seeking some solicited advice. I spoke to a therapist about my lack of success with writing jobs and my basically non-existent attempts at writing my own pieces. I told her I felt lazy, especially because other people's successes were so public. I told her it wasn't that I wasn't trying or because I was afraid of failure. I didn't feel afraid. I didn't know if it was laziness or depression or lack of motivation. I just knew that it felt incurable. The therapist suggested creating a reward system for myself. For example, I will submit a draft to a literary agent and the reward will be a manicure. Or, if I write for three hours, even if it's nonsense, I can have a glass of wine. But I really struggled to even know how to begin with something like that. What's an acceptable reward? Who sets that boundary? How do I know when I've done enough? What do I deserve? What merits reward? And what does reward look like from one person to another? And, putting all that aside, who would even know if I just skipped straight to the manicure? I've submitted plenty of drafts and I've written plenty of nonsense for three hours straight, and they haven't gotten me anywhere. So why not just skip to the glass of wine anyway? A common suggestion was to find accountability, to sign up for a writer's workshop, or to find a writing buddy who would read my pages. 
This theme of community kept coming up as the answer to my struggles. Writing is solitary, so to find ways to make it less isolating seemed to make sense. But interestingly, I never consciously felt lonely during that time. I was definitely depressed or unmotivated or whatever I should define it as, and I was certainly on my own a lot, but loneliness honestly never even occurred to me. I was single for a good chunk of my 20s, and I genuinely enjoyed my own company. When I moved to Philadelphia after that particularly low time, I rented an adorable studio apartment with a twin bed, a charmingly tiny closet, and a love seat that could only very snugly fit more than one person. There were days when I did a lot and days when I didn't do anything. No one was there to know either way. I'd see friends sometimes, but many nights I spent on my own. I never once signed up for a dating app, and I had far more interest in the books I would bring to bars than the men who would try to distract me from them. When I started to date Ramsey, it was the first time I could actually see myself enjoying that shared time and physical space. I had never thought of myself as a particularly talkative person, but I found myself, and still find myself, wanting to chat to him all the time. If I was flopped on the couch watching a TV show, I wanted him there. If I was discovering a new menu or cooking a delicious meal, I wanted him there. The pandemic came as Ramsey and I were getting pretty serious, and we were faced with the option that so many other relatively new couples were faced with. Do we take the leap and move in together so that we can keep safely being around each other? Ramsey was not working because all the bars had closed, and I was working remotely with a new boss based in Miami. The quarters were closer than close but we knew together is where both of us wanted to be. There were things that I had loved about that less than 300 square foot apartment as a person alone, like how every single item had its place because there simply wasn't room for anything more than a curated collection. But as a person who was no longer alone, I had to make adjustments. And it probably didn't help, though, I'm covering her ears as I say this, that we adopted Pepper a few months into the pandemic, so we added a 60-pound, four-legged roommate to our cramped situation. The kitchen was the bedroom, was the living room, was the office, and all three of us were basically tripping over each other. But despite the logistical challenges, we had a great time. As far as quarantine bickering goes, we were on the very low end of the spectrum. We enjoyed wheeling our grocery cart to Reading Terminal, fully masked, to buy ingredients for elaborate meals like Oysters Rockefeller, although that particular meal proved more challenging than anticipated, and we ended up trying to bash the oysters open with a hammer in lieu of an actual shucking knife. We binge-watched Love is Blind and had long talks about interracial love. We watched the sunset on the roof and learned choreography to Old Town Road. People commented on how dogs who were adopted during the pandemic would have separation anxiety once their owners went back to work, but I think I experienced something similar. I became extremely physically attached to my time with Ramsey. When the bars gradually started opening and he went back to work, or when I would go sit on my parents' patio for a socially distanced visit, I would miss him and feel anxious. I know the independent part of myself was somewhere deep down in me, crying out for me to remember how much I valued my alone time, but all I could respond with was, this is all I know now. And then, the independent part and all of the other parts of me experienced some whiplash. Ramsey and I relocated to Miami in early January of 2021, and the move changed the entire nature of our day-to-day -day life almost immediately. 
my job transitioned back to being in person, which is why we moved down here in the first place, and Ramsey was quickly hired to bartend at a popular nearby spot. By the time I would return home from work on a Friday evening from my standard 9 to 5, he had already left. We would say a quick hello before he'd leave to work the double shifts on Saturdays. I think there's a misperception that loneliness means wanting to make as many friends as quickly as possible. But for introverts, or at least for this introvert, the opposite was true. I haven't immersed myself in the Miami social scene, not because I feel lazy, but because I feel lonely. Because I miss the things I know. I had my favorite bar to take my book on a date. I had familiar running routes that took me past charmingly decorated stoops. These are all things I could easily do here, and I could do them alone. But instead of going to interesting museums or taking myself out to dinner, I have talked myself into every excuse to stay in, wanting to save money or feeling guilty that Pepper would be alone. I said at the beginning of this episode that this is something that's been on my mind for a few weeks. I don't think that's coincidental. I think it directly relates to the start of my training for my second marathon. I spoke in episode 1.9 about the importance of training for my first marathon, about how it helped me get back into my body. But something I didn't really expand on is how it helped me get into my mind. For many months now, I've been numbing my mind. I didn't realize I was doing it until I realized I was already coming out of it. It must have started at the beginning of this fall, when the north was getting chilly and that awareness of the things I miss, like flannel and crisp air and the smell of damp leaves, was growing more acute. I started arriving home from work, taking Pepper out and cooking dinner as quickly as I possibly could, just so I could sit on the couch with the TV on and my laptop screen open. Even while I was cooking that rush dinner, I'd have a show on in the background. I'm several weeks into my training plan for the marathon, and I'm roughly following the same 16-week training plan that I did for the Philadelphia one in 2019. There's one long run each week that gradually increases in distance, all the way up to 20 miles. So naturally, this is starting to take more and more time in my schedule each week. But this is where I've started to mentally come back to myself, because these runs make me feel incredibly appreciative of my surroundings. We live in a great neighborhood. People are always out and about, enjoying the sun on their faces and the ever-so-slight breeze from the bay. There are cute couples, young families, amazing dogs. Miami is so interesting, and the longer the runs get, the further my legs take me into unique and diverse neighborhoods. I get to smell the buttery baked goods as I run through Little Havana. I get to take in the colorful murals in Wynwood. The more I run, the more time I spend looking at people and things around me, not at a screen and not at fictional characters. And I recently decided to not let that end when the run does. A couple of weeks ago, Ramsey bartended almost every night, and I committed to cooking a nice dinner for myself on each of those nights. I ran the four miles home from work, took the dog for a walk, showered, put on a jazz playlist, cooked, set the table for one, and ate what I had prepared. It felt meaningful and pleasant. It felt like a ritual, like I was more mindful of each moment, like I could more vividly taste each bite. It felt like self-care. And the point is, the whole ritual was finished by 9 or 9.30, plenty of time to watch a show or scroll through Instagram or do all of those things that I used to rush home to do anyway. We went to a sports bar to watch football this Sunday, and it was really good fun. We had a couple over that night for dinner and an extremely competitive game of Uno, 
and it felt good to engage with people. As I said at the beginning of this episode, I haven't come to any conclusions of what this means going forward, or if I will now dive more willingly into social events or commit to cooking dinner for myself each night that Ramsey works. But I do know that we will not live in Miami forever, and I know that I want to feel like I've made the most of it, whatever the most will mean for me. Even though I am currently training for a marathon, I still feel lazy sometimes. Even though I am putting out a weekly podcast on top of working my 9-to-5 day job, I still feel lazy sometimes. I think I'm conditioned to feel this way, or just used to feeling like I don't have a barometer for what is enough. I think to myself, if I could just have the same no-excuses attitude about writing that I do about running, I'd have a collection of essays published by now. I think to myself, you can run 12 miles first thing in the morning, but you can't walk half a mile to Goodwill? I don't know where the inconsistency comes from, or why the bursts of productivity distribute themselves as they do, but I imagine part of the conflict comes from so many internal and external mixed messages. Some people say to lean in, to really go for things so you never have to ask what if, but sometimes I feel like it doesn't matter. Some people say to be gentle on yourself and give yourself grace because life can be a big challenge, but sometimes I think I'm too gentle on myself. I go back and forth some days, sometimes some minutes, on being proud of what I have accomplished and down on myself for what I have not. In episode 2.1, Alison Cook described how we have different and sometimes conflicting parts of ourselves. It takes patience and curiosity to get to know these parts, and that curiosity can lead to a deeper understanding of ourselves. The past several years, and especially the past two years, have thrown my different parts into a state of chaos. There's the independent part that is recovering from the year of lockdown. There's the newer, more uncomfortable part that feels a bit needy when I'm away from my partner or mopey when I'm away from my friends. But as Allison explained, those parts can both be present. One does not have to silence the other. They can learn to coexist, and they can both offer beautiful value. My goals are still in place. I still dream of writing essays, of having a consistent daily routine impressive enough to make me feel fulfilled. But I also hold space for that part of me that needs to let my mind rest, especially after, and let's face it, still during a time of deep uncertainty on a global scale, it feels comforting to watch season three of Parks and Recreation. I'm also still comforted scrolling through dog memes. But I want there to be room for both. I want to make it to Goodwill this weekend, because a fuzzy sweater I no longer want to wear is sitting in the corner of my bedroom, waiting for its next owner, who might just find their own comfort in it. You can subscribe to Of Age on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and join the conversation on Instagram by following at Of Age Pod. Thank you for your support.